Okay, we are going to be reading from Genesis chapter 5, and I'm not going to lie to you, this is going to be a little bit turbulent. I'm not sure, how many people here have ever heard a sermon specifically on the genealogies of the Bible? Yeah, okay, so literally a handful. So we're going to read through Genesis chapter 5, which is just tracing the lineage from Adam all the way to Noah. This is the kind of section of the Bible that it's very tempting to skip, but I want you to follow through it, but it's totally fair to be attentive to the point in the chapter where your eyes begin to glaze over. It does get very repetitive. I'm going to have a little quiz afterwards to see how long you lasted. Just make a little mark in your notes. Like, yeah, it was about verse 8. I started to kind of daydream about uh, grocery shopping this afternoon. But here we go. Genesis chapter 5, this is the written account of Adam's line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. And he created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years, and he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And he named him Seth, and Seth was born. Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. After he had become the father of Mahalalel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. <sighs> Breath. Still tracking? Anybody? Everyone still awake? Good. Here we go. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared, and he became the father of Sorry, after he became the father of Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he had become the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son, and he named him Noah, and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Oof. Don't you just love 
reading the genealogies of the Bible, pondering them, just stewing over them, letting their deep wisdom and personal relevance invade your soul and transform your life? Why is everyone laughing? That's not the case with you? (laughs) The Bible contains a lot of genealogies at strategic points in the text, and these are lists of ancestry that are used to usually connect one major event or story with another so that we don't read the Bible as a collection of disconnected fables, like Aesop's fables, right? Here's this lesson when you want to, here's a story when you want to learn this lesson. Through the genealogies, God is teaching us that these events and these people are building towards a climax. They all fit together. They're part of a bigger puzzle piece. And although that, what that picture, what that puzzle was going to look like wasn't known to the people who were first given these texts, it becomes clear the closer and closer we get to Jesus. So in Genesis 5, we're connecting Adam and God's creation to Noah and then what we're going to read about in the next few chapters, which is the flood. And I totally get that today, in our day and age, we do not think about genealogies or ancestry very much. So this text is just seems freighted with insignificance and relevance to us because we just don't think about these things. I mean, how many people here honestly think you could even trace back your ancestry four to five generations? Forget about 20. So, so definitely under 10, right? I certainly couldn't. Culturally, thinking across generations just isn't really important to us. We might be interested in some of the sociological markers of our generation. What are boomers like? What is Gen X like? Or what is it like to be a Gen Z who has to work with a um, Gen Xer or a millennial? But most people aren't fascinated or even interested in their own genealogy. And there's not a lot within our culture that encourages us to think about those things. And how that expresses itself is that when we get to biblical genealogies, we can be tempted to outright skip them or read them as quickly as possible, maybe skim them, skim them get kind of the gist, and uh, move on to the meatier stuff, the stuff that we can actually read and be like, okay, I'm kind of tracking with what's going on. I kind of see what lesson I'm supposed to get out of this. The genealogies don't immediately conclude with, therefore, this is what we want you to learn. But this morning what I want to do is I want to actually share five really exciting and faith-fueling lessons that understanding and reading and pondering the genealogies can bring into our lives. Even though maybe at an emotional level, certainly when I was a new Christian, it was like, this is the worst part of Scripture, all these genealogies, or the numbers of the Israelites in the book of Numbers. But there are actually five really exciting faith-fueling reminders that should always kind of wash over us whenever we encounter the genealogies. The first is this. The genealogies remind us that we are going to die. Psalm 90.12 says, God, teach us to number our days so that we can gain a heart of wisdom. The New Living Translation says, In that same verse, teach us to realize the brevity of life, God, so that we can grow in wisdom. And Ephesians 5.15 says, be very careful how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. 
And although meditating and pondering the inevitability of your death, regardless of what stage you're at in life, that can seem very grim. And it's definitely against the grain of a culture that is constantly pushing youth and beauty and wellness and vibrancy before us. But meditating on your mortality is only depressing if you miss the point. The Bible teaches that having a healthy sense of the fact that you are not going to live on this earth forever and you do not know how much time is given to you between this moment and when you're going to die, that that can be a leverage point through which you can focus your life. And instead of having it play out in a meandering, ever-expansive, distractionary, kind of meh, unfocused mess, the inevitability of your death can really focus you to say, what really matters? What am I living for? When we understand that we're going to die, it becomes much easier to prioritize. It becomes much easier to seek after the things that are deeply meaningful. Done in the light of eternity, thinking about your death can actually foster a very godly perspective and and a great kingdom urgency. You begin to see and treat time as a gift. Trivial time wasters, maybe not initially, but over time, they just become more and more unattractive. They lose their grip on you. When you read through these genealogies and then you hear again and again, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, that's an echo that has to reverberate in your own soul. One day you're going to die. Hebrews 9.27, man is appointed to die once and then face judgment. And that truth can help drive you into deeper meaning and purpose here and now, and it should. Number two, genealogies remind us to consider our legacy. Everybody in this room is going to leave a legacy because a legacy is just the wake of your life after your death. So your legacy might be something incredibly good, might be in something incredibly negative, maybe it'll be a, a mixed bag, but it's really important to consider what kind of legacy you want to follow after you die. Jesus says the greatest thing you can devote your life to the great capital L legacy that we should all be aiming towards is love God with every part of who we are and love our neighbors as we would love ourselves. That's the legacy that every Christian is called to in terms of a basic direction. We're all kind of going in that direction. But there's all kinds of questions around what shape specific to your life and who you are and your gifts and passions and talents, the experiences that God has woven into your particular life. What legacy how are you going to give shape to that legacy in your life? What does it look like for you to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself through who God has made you? Genealogies remind us that how you live has a cascading effect on successive generations. That's why in Haggai 1.7, God says, give careful thought to your ways. Don't just kind of wake up and move through the day reflexively and move through the week reflexively and then weeks become months, become years and you get to the end of your life and you just realize you just sort of got swept up in the momentum of life and stuff that you had to do and you didn't give careful attention to how you were living. We need to have these moments. I understand they maybe can't happen all the time 
But we need to make sure that we have these intentional moments of retreat, of quiet, of solitude, where we break the momentum of what can sometimes feel like the inevitability of our days and weeks and say, God, I want to give careful thought to my next month, to my next year, to my next decade. Because every day you're putting a brick in the structure of your legacy, whether or not you realize it or not. So the question becomes, are you building on the foundation of Christ? And then are you building in a way that blesses God and others now? And then are you building with a view to bless God and bless other people even when you pass on? Are you content to just be a name and a genealogy that says, here was Jeff, he was born to this person, he lived and died, that's it? Or do you at least want to leave a legacy that those who knew you well said, this person walked with God? And they fought the good fight, and they finished the race. And from the time they gave their life over to Jesus to when they died, they were interested in growing into greater and deeper Christ-likeness and expressing that love and grace into the world. No matter what age you are at, no matter what stage of life you are in, I would encourage you to take time to prayerfully consider the legacy that God wants to establish through you. And it might not be something deeply specific. God might not say at the age of 46, I want you to have accomplished X, Y, and Z. I think that's actually incredibly, incredibly rare. What we want to be attentive to is those nudges on our heart that resonate with biblical themes. How am I loving God when I pray about loving God and loving other people, when I think about who I am, the gifts God has given me, the experiences, the talents? Where do I feel that there's a natural overlap between an opportunity to love and serve in this world and who I am? And how do I just allow God to continue to guide me along that path? But we're always praying. We're saying, God, I don't want to waste my life. I want to think carefully about how I spend my days and my weeks and my months and my years. Number three, genealogies remind us that intergenerational momentum is not destiny. Genealogies remind us that intergenerational momentum is not destiny. One of the things you might expect if you were one of the first people to receive these texts um, is that with every successive generation, everything is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse as sin compounds and the avalanche of sin just begins to kind of come down the mountain, right? You have Adam and Eve and their sin, and they get expelled from the garden, and then their children, you know, uh, Cain slays, slays Abel. So you'd expect everything to just keep getting worse and worse and worse. But at the end of chapter 4 in Genesis, we read the following. At that time people began to call on the name of the Lord. There's a lot of different ancestries and family stories and lineages represented in this room. And I don't know, I know some, but I don't know all of, all of your backstories. I don't know the kind of intergenerational momentum that you find yourself in the middle of, that you were born into. But I do know in studying the Bible and observing my own history, observing pastorally the history of other people, that patterns of sin and patterns of righteousness tend to be transmitted to each generation. And so I know there's a lot of people here who have been dealt a really, really bad hand, as it were. Addiction runs in your family, emotional neglect or indifference, 
maybe your lineage, your parents before you, your grandparents, just practice financial foolhardiness. Maybe there's rampant abuse. But one of the good news messages that's buried in Genesis 5 is that even despite the real presence of sin in our lives, intergenerational momentum is not destiny. You're not consigned to inevitably get caught up in the sins of your forefathers. In Genesis 5.24, after reading about this person who lives and dies and this person who lives and dies, the narrative, the genealogy, in a sense, gets interrupted. We read something new. We read that Enoch walked faithfully with God, and God took him because he was no more. At some point in Enoch's life, he made a decision. He called upon the name of the Lord, and he began to walk faithfully with God, and his life was different because he turned it over to God. And your life can be different if you turn it over to God. Your life can be different if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, because he can give you power that can break chains of sinful, negative, abusive, harmful, intergenerational momentum. I understand that momentum is powerful. It overtakes a lot of people. But through Jesus, you can create new momentum and a new direction, not just for your life, but for successive generations from you. Number four, genealogies remind us to invest in the next generation. They should. Given what we've already moved through, I hope you can see that, right? When you have a broader picture that you are going to die and that you need to leave a legacy, I think it kind of, part of the dots that get connected pretty quickly is, how am I investing in the next generation? Psalm 145 says, one generation will commend your works to another and they will tell of your mighty acts. That's the rhythm that's just supposed to be a part of the people of God, that we are finding ways to build into and to invest and to care for and to support the next generation. And not just necessarily within our family, but the generations that are coming up within the church. And to that end, I'm really thankful, and everybody in this room should be thankful, whether or not these ministries directly impact your life right now, we should be thankful that this church's history has been very strongly supportive of children and youth ministry. I'm thankful, really deeply thankful, for people who have invested their time, energy, and money, not just now, but for decades, and will continue to, into the next generation. Whether that's through their own intentional parenting or grandparenting, whether that's through teaching Sunday school, mentoring a teen, just finding common ground, being a supportive voice in a young adult's life, coaching a sports team, there's all kinds of ways that it happens. Praying, and see that's the amazing thing about investing in the next generation. It doesn't look like, well it's something that's available to all of us, and we should all be doing it because we all can do it. We can all be praying for the kids and teens and young adults that make up this church. We can all be doing that. Some of us, some of us though, need to take up the mantle and say, I'm gonna st- stretch myself and I wanna learn to teach Sunday school. I wanna be part of the next generation's earliest memories 
being, when I went to church, it was awesome. It was awesome. We kept our kids home last week to help them unpack. Three of my kids that were awake got mad at me because they weren't coming to church. Not like really mad, but they were like dumbfounded. They're like, why aren't we going to church? Well, we just moved. It's been a busy weekend. I thought I was being like cool pastor dad of being like, hey, why don't you guys take a Sunday off? And they'd be like, woo, yay, that's so cool. And it was totally the opposite. They were like, I want to go to church. And it wasn't localized to any one thing, but they associate this place with a place where they feel safe. They learn about God. It's fun. They see their friends. I mean, that's amazing. And everybody is a part of that, whether we're teaching Sunday school, whether we're giving high five to kids out in the crush space after the service, whether we're just saying, you know, hi, how's your, how's your week going? Or that's a cool stuffy. We can all develop relationships of support and care for children and youth. And Christians have a responsibility to invest in all of the children in their lives, not just their own. So where are we doing that? Where can we start? Where could each of us start? Can at least start with prayer. But is there another step that we could take to say, I want to invest in the next generation. I want to look for a way to encourage, support, equip, and invest in those who are just beginning their faith journey. Lastly, number five, genealogies remind us that something better is waiting for those who have trusted their life with Christ. That repetition of, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, it can, it can wear down your soul in a certain way because it can feel like death is inevitable and always will be. And it can feel like, as the writer of Ecclesiastes kind of says, when you kind of look at the complexity and depth of life and the level of suffering and, from his point of view, the inevitability of death, it can lead you to kind of say, it's all kind of pointless and meaningless. But Paul in Philippians 1.21 says, for me as a Christian, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's like I have the ultimate cosmological win-win. If I'm alive, I get to live for Jesus. And every day that I'm alive, whether it's a hard day or an easy day, a day full of joy or carrying the burden of another person or bringing my burdens to Christ, I get to live with Christ. I get to learn what it means to walk with Christ for another day. That's awesome. And then if I die, if someone kills me or um, I die, then it's like it's an upgrade because now I'm in the full presence of Jesus no longer um, separated through the veil of my sin. I'm now fully at home with the Lord. You're going to die. But if you're a Christian, 1 Corinthians 15 says, death has lost its sting because death is no longer the end. It's no longer the, (laughs) the ontological brick wall that we all hit up against. Jesus has transformed death to be a new beginning into what's ultimately going to be a resurrection life. That's why Romans 14 says, none of us live for ourselves alone. None of us dies to ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And that means that however long your life is, however short your life is, however... um, 
however early you came to Christ, however late in the game of life you came to Christ, there is something better waiting for you. This life is not all there is, and something truly glorious is waiting. And actually, it's so glorious that the Bible actually counsels us to be careful thinking about it because it extends beyond our mind's ability to grasp it. In Ephesians, it says, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. So you became a Christian when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you heard that in Christ you could be saved from the power and penalty of your sin and saved into a new life. When you believed, it's the second thing Paul says, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. God has claimed you. When you yield your heart to Jesus, God claims you as his own. And as C.S. Lewis rightly notes, we don't know what the furniture of heaven is going to look like. But the Bible does promise that what awaits us after death is something glorious and powerful and something that can actually carry you through the deepest suffering this side of eternity. Calls it a homecoming, a paradise, a future that culminates in a new heavens and a new earth, bodily resurrection existence with God forever. It's a future so amazing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And I remember reading that. I think I was first exposed to that in a Max Lucado book way back when I first became a Christian. And I remember trying to think about how amazing eternity with God would be and to realize however far I pushed my imagination, the Bible always said, yeah, you're not there. You can't conceive it. The closest you're going to get is like a dim hint. And so I hope we see this morning that far from being irrelevant or boring, genealogies can actually propel you into a more profound walk with Christ and a richer and more intentional and more joyous, meaningful life as a result. Because genealogies can remind us that we're going to die. And therefore, genealogies remind us to consider the legacy that we're going to be leaving. Genealogies remind us that sinful, destructive, intergenerational momentum is not destiny when Jesus is involved. And genealogies remind us to invest in the next generation. And lastly, they remind us that something better is waiting those who have trusted Christ with their lives and eternities. Let's ponder these truths and allow God to use them to reform our hearts into greater alignment with his priorities and purposes this week. Let's pray. God, may this message and may the theme that just takes root in our hearts over this next week that you just, by your spirit, just keep bringing before us is to give careful thought to our ways and to consider how we're living now in the light of eternity. Give us grace for that, God. Thank you that we have hope beyond this life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Please stand and sing a last song with us.